Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Hello, everyone. Before I begin, let me take a second and explain a slight rebranding or reorganization that you'll see on some of my upcoming episodes. You've probably noticed that I structure Nighttime around both standalone stories, like, for example, Justice for Sia, as well as reoccurring series like Keep Canada Weird, UFOs Above Canada, or the Nova Scotia Mass Shootings. Well, my regular guest, Madeleine Klein, and I have been bouncing our collaborations between episodes branded Missing in Canada and some branded as Canadian Gothic. And here's where we get to the rebrand. Just to make it easier for listeners to predict the style and the participants of a nighttime podcast episode, from this point on, stories that are told by way of a conversation between Madeleine Klein and I will be simply branded as Canadian Gothic. So basically, Canadian Gothic means Jordan and Madeleine Klein are going to be exploring dark Canadian stories. Those dark stories could include missing persons cases, murders, and probably even a lot worse. Also, if you're interested, we'll be broadcasting our live recordings on the Nighttime Podcast YouTube channel every Thursday night at 9.15pm Atlantic Time. So please join us. So yeah, with all that cleared up, let's get into the episode. You are listening to Canadian Gothic, a series by the Nighttime Podcast. Hello listeners. This episode is going to take us to the small town of Kipling, Saskatchewan. With a population hovering just around 1,000 people, most of you have likely never heard of this place. And why would we? There's little to know or say about Kipling. Its claim to fame, I guess, is that back in the mid-aughts, a blog was created in which a fella chronicled his journey of trades. He started with one singular paperclip, and after a year of wheeling, dealing, and negotiating, he ended up trading all the way up to a modest two-story home in Kipling. As far as its claim to infamy, well, that's what we're going to be getting into here tonight. That story revolves around a rape allegation directed at a respected local physician. On Halloween night, 1992, a 23-year-old woman went to the hospital facing a mental health crisis. The physician on duty, Dr. John Schneeberger, was tasked with handling her care. His care, as it turns out, involved drugging her, raping her, and going to unimaginable lengths to hide his crimes. So let that description be a trigger warning. Tonight, in this episode, I'll be joined by Canadian crime content creator Madeleine Klein to explore the case of Dr. John Schneeberger. Let's get into it. The town looked up to the doctor. He was a good doctor, and he, he would never do anything like that. To end the controversy, Dr. Schneeberger willingly agreed to give blood for a DNA test. The DNA in the blood drawn from Dr. Schneeberger did not match the biological material from Candy's rape test kit. And I was in shock again. And I said, no, that's impossible. How, how can this be? Maddie Klein, fancy meeting you here. How are you doing all the way over there in Saskatchewan somewhere? Oh, I'm great. I'm, uh, you know, just hanging out. Your background looks wonderful. Your shelf looks like it's recently been dusted. And you got a new light. I did. Um, it's orange. Yeah, I can tell. Uh, <laughs> it's beautifully isn't, orange. Isn't it fabulous? Yeah, it's like... Really, a, it's really the cherry on top to the background. Of this whole so. situation. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, how have you been? What's new? What's going on in your life? Uh, yeah, it's been a couple of weeks. And it has. I, yeah, I've been thinking all day about what I could tell you what's new today. Let and... me give you some, how about some prompts? Okay. Uh, tell me one good thing that happened to you over the last week. Like what's one positive thing that happened in your life? I stayed in all weekend. It's so positive. I don't think I left the house once. No, I left the house once. Okay. So that's that's great. And like well, for me, my house is my sanctuary. You just take a pictures of your cats for two days? Pretty much. Hanging out yeah. with yeah, cats, husband, and life is good. <laughs> well, let me tell you mine. Something good that's happened. Uh, over this past weekend, I had a great experience I don't think I told you about. There was, uh, you know, I love Value Village and flea markets and vintage stuff. I found out that there was this thing happening outside of my city called the Nova Scotia Collector Convention that had, uh, it, it was kind of like a flea market kind of situation, uh, but it was all vintage toys and collectibles. So think like 1970s, 80s, and 90s. 90s toys, figures, GI cool. Joe, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so my boys and I went and uh, we bought a whole bunch of random things. My kids are obsessed with Pokemon cards. I buy comic books like a grown nerd and we got a bunch of stuff. It was an amazing time. That sounds so cool. Anyway, that's the intro for this episode. We got to get into a really twisted story, one that I had never heard about until you told me about it and just a couple maybe a week or two ago i'm going to get his name wrong every time i say it but how you live in the same province that the case of dr john schneeberger occurred in. very good Perfect. did i get it yep so this happened in your province in saskatchewan how do you know about this guy and did you know about it like you know back when this all happened in the 90s i remember my mom telling me about it okay um because because the trial would have been in 99 and I was six in 99. And okay. yeah, my mom's always been pretty real with me. So I, wow. I remember her, I remember her telling me about this trial and this doctor, you okay. know, gave fake blood with whatever. Wow. And then I, and then I forgot about it for okay. a long, long time. Like, I don't know what made me think of it. Actually, I do. And it's very weird because I, I was at work and we were actually talking about visectomies. And this case just like flooded back into my mind and i was like that's very odd because there's no connection there okay but yeah and i was like oh okay but i was like oh do you guys because i was talking to some co-workers they're like early 40s and i was like oh do you guys remember this case and then they were like oh yeah i think i do remember that and i was like i gotta go look more into this i'm doing okay. this as my next case yeah <laughs> so yeah are. and then i and here we are. I, I think I may have like heard it mentioned or something. Cause when you started telling me like the, some of the details, like a doctor or rape accusation, DNA tests that may have been, uh, had funky stuff happening with them. Like I was like, I kind of know. But then when I started reading about it, I watched two documentaries, two and a half documentaries, I'll say. Um, it's, it's blows my mind that this isn't a major story uh, across Canada that everyone knows about. We'll get into the story, but just to set the stage even further, what are your feelings about going to the doctor? Have you ever had a weird experience, a good experience? Do you have a doctor? I know many Canadians don't. I do. Yeah. I just recently learned that too, but no, I've had the same family doctor for like God, since I was probably six or seven. Really? Okay. You're one of the lucky ones. Mm -hmm. And she's very lovely. Few, very few people have that. I, um, 
in Nova Scotia, I don't know what the percentage is, but the wait list to get a family doctor in Nova Scotia, it's just like you basically need to show up on death's door at the hospital to see a doctor in this province. Yes. Um, it's it's brutal, it's horrible. And it's when you call like a, a doctor's office, if they don't answer, like the voicemail is usually something like, you've reached the office of doctor, you know, whatever. We're not accepting new patients. Calls related to new patients will not be responded to. If you're a patient, leave a message after the beat. Like that's kind of how it works. But I'm so lucky. We're like you. I have a family doctor in Halifax um, and it's his practice isn't like in a big clinic or at the hospital. He has like a small little practice where he is the only doctor in this oh, practice. Nice. It's, it's like him and his receptionist. That's it. And so, and it's the kind of thing where if I want an appointment, I can usually call and see them or for my kids or whatever. I can usually see him the day I call within a couple hours in most cases where many, oh, wow. I have friends who are like, you know, have been trying for years to get access to a doctor and instead go to these medical clinics. But I think the reason I wanted to get into that at to start is just because a doctor has this unique role in society, maybe unlike any other position, unlike a politician or anything, people like rely on their doctor and depend on their doctor. And if you have a relationship with your doctor, it's so important to you because when push comes to shove, I don't know, maybe you will pray that, you know, things get better, but you will very likely call your doctor and be like, you know, you're the one who's going to fix me in this. A doctor is right. an important position. And the story we're going to get into, it leans on that a little bit because it involves accusations against a doctor in a small town who has a great reputation and despite evidence to the against them and a very strong case at times you'll hear as we get into it um people didn't people seem to just not want this doctor to fall uh fall from grace i guess we can put it we'll we'll set the scene with um there's really this this case that we'll discuss it revolves around two people of course there's dr john schneeberger do you want to tell us a little bit about him and then i'll introduce uh, the other player to the story? So Dr. John was born in Zambia in 1961. He got his medical credentials in South Africa and then mm. immigrated over here in 89 uh, into Kipling, Saskatchewan. To my knowledge, he just went, I don't know how he ended up there, but well, he did. When people come from out of the country into Canada, I'm always surprised by where they end up. A lot of new True. immigrants end up in Sydney, Cape Breton, where I'm from. And I'm always like, how? if I meet someone, I'm like, how in God's name did you find out about this like blip on the underarm of the country? Um, and they usually say, I'm not sure. <laughs> but do you know Kipling? Do you know uh, I know, I know of it. I've probably driven through it it's pretty close like it's i think it's only two hours away what would like what if you were to describe kipling from your point of view what like what is it what kind of place is this that this happens in oh like small town maybe three three main roads and and that's and a hockey rink and yeah. that's a, okay. maybe a curling rink but I think, and, and that's, I also think that's important because I have a feeling if you could find out about how many doctors were in Kipling in the era that this happens in the early nineties, it's, there's probably only a few doctors and that's maybe a part of the reason why he was able to push this as far. But anyway, we're in, we're in Kipling. What else about him in the nineties was 
how would you do it? What was his life like? He married in 91, married mm-hmm. a woman with two children from a previous marriage or relationship. I'm not clear on that. Mm-hmm. And then they had two daughters of their own. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they were living their best lives in the early 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he, so Dr. Schneeberger, he has his wife, Lisa, her two children from a prior marriage, and then the two children they had together. On the other side of the story, is quite the opposite uh, lifestyle, I guess, is we have people, if you read about this case online, she's often referred to as Candy. And I think the reason for that is in the early coverage of the story, it seemed like she was using um, the name Candy uh, to be anonymous. But I've also seen more recent articles and documentaries where she's using her full name, which is Candace. It seems like something must have changed over the years and she's comfortable using the name Candace. So that's what I'll use. But at the time that this happened, Candace was a 23 year old single mother. She was raising a baby on her own. And to make that happen, she was working nights at a local gas station. I wouldn't say she had a bad reputation, but she was known as like someone who would, you know, like, I guess like a partier is how I would put it. Someone who was living a life, young girl, raising a baby on her own, working at a gas station, as I said. So those are the the two people that the story centers around. But the event itself will play out over years, but it starts on Halloween night in 1992. So what happens is it starts with Candace's at work at the gas station. Um, I believe as she's getting off work, her boyfriend is outside the gas station that she's working at, and they get in what's described as an explosive argument, and it involves around him being uh, being with another woman. So whatever happens, they're yelling at each other. The boyfriend and a friend leave in, in a truck. Candace uh, is out of her mind, uh, upset unable to control herself and calm herself down. And she seems to realize that she's going through something like a, I don't, maybe a breakdown or something is how, is what I'm kind of imagining that to be as you would describe it. And she decides to leave the gas station and go to the hospital where a good friend works. It's the Kipling Memorial Hospital. She goes hoping to see a friend there who I believe was working as a nurse or, or an orderly is how I saw it described. I don't really know what the difference would be, but regardless, it turned out that her friend wasn't working that night, but the other nurses on duty that encountered 23-year-old Candace, who was seemingly in the at the point of a breakdown, realized something was wrong, and they coaxed her, well, I don't know coaxed her, but they encouraged her to stay a little while and see a doctor to see if, you know, if, if everything was going to be okay. Uh, she agrees to do it. And the doctor that she was going to see is not a stranger to her. Dr. John Schneeberger. And he actually was the doctor that delivered her baby. And and I believe just like a year prior, like she, at the time that this happened, she had a baby and anyone who has kids, uh, I have two, the relationship you form with the doctor that delivers the baby is this like very unique and deep thing where there's so much trust. They see you at your most vulnerable, especially a woman. You know, me as the the man sitting there like useless, um, I still felt it, but I'm sure 
for the woman uh, who's actually doing the delivery, the relationship you have with the doctor that's making that happen and getting you through that is something. So I can, when I hear this story, I think the amount of trust she must have had in this man perhaps is a part of what made her say like, yeah, like I'm going through something. I'm going to stay at the hospital and spend some time, you know, talk to the doctor that just helped me through the most stressful thing I've ever been through. I never thought of that. When you get, when we get to how this plays out, it's not just like a stranger. Maybe it's not her family doctor, but it's someone who just helped her again through the most traumatic, probably most painful day of her life. I'm, I'm willing to bet. Um, but talk us through the night. And I'm excited to hear you describe it because I know you know a lot of the medical terms and devices and stuff that come up in this, this section of the story. Well, so Candy is in the room. The doctor comes in and he notices that, she, you know, she's upset and he she explains to him what's going on. And he suggests a sedative to her, but he ends up injecting her with a drug called Versid or I, I know it as midazolam. And midazolam is a pre-anesthetic drug that is supposed to like just slow your brain function, let you sleep. And when I originally, because I worked in an operating room for like five years, um, I'm not a nurse, but when I asked a nurse, like, what's what's this drug? What's it? What are we using this for? All they said was, oh, that may, that's what that's what makes you forget. Ooh, OK. That's what, that's what my nurse friend said. That's the drug that makes you forget. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So when I typed in Versed to Google and then found out that another name for it was Midazolam. I was like, oh. Oh, that stuff. Because yeah. I've I've seen this drug in in action. And it's it's not a it's it doesn't knock you out. Mm -hmm. It's it's just a pre-anesthetic. It's yeah. And it, it seems so, like it would would be atypical to use that for someone who's going through what see what seems to be like a mental health episode where she just needed to calm down. This is a pretty right. extreme way to do it. Like it, it put and her not in. only that, but I've I I don't think she had an IV. I've only ever seen this stuff be given intravenously. So he did he just stick a syringe in her and was like, I'm pretty sure she referred to it as a shot. He gave me a shot, and a shot to me is a needle of stuff. Right. So I'm just like I'm not sure if that's how you should be, hmm. uh, like giving that out. But I yeah. don't know. I still. Regardless, well, I, I'm he gonna gave go, her this shot. I'm going to go with your gut rather than this doctor's, um, your opinion on it. But he gives her this shot, which according to to her statements that she made, it seemed to pretty much make her a living zombie where she was conscious, but like in a huge daze, unable to move or even make a sound. Like basically like a living zombie just stuck to the table is how I'm imagining it. Right. Um, actually, I can't believe I didn't think of this until just right now. Uh, I got my wisdom teeth out many years ago and I was sedated. And I don't remember anything except for one one part where I, I like remember seeing the light and then they they were talking to me and they said my name. But so I like totally understand, I think, what Candy was feeling. Mm -hmm. Or at one point, I should say, mm -hmm. just just the the anesthetic part of it. It's and yeah, it is. It's kind of hard to explain, but yeah, you're definitely you're definitely there, and mm -hmm. you can. And I remember very clearly what happened when I 
was sedated. Yeah. Just my, for that little bit, but still. The, that comparing what she was going to through through a dent uh, to a dental procedure is something she did as well because Candace in the documentary I saw she said what I remember about being unconscious is uh, like when you get a tooth pulled and your gums are asleep or whatever you don't feel the pain but you feel some pressure when she's a, when she's unconscious or semi-conscious on this table she described um not really remembering what's happening, but feeling pressure in like her groin and abdomen. She remembered the doctor being in the room. She remembered pressure, but that's really all she seems to recall from the actual night, Halloween night, when this incident happened. Well, I believe, I believe she said she like remembers her, she could feel her pants being pulled down okay. and then, yeah, she could feel pressure. And then she actually rolled over and saw schneeberger leave the room oh man yeah this medicine it made it so that she was unable to leave the hospital so she spends the night in the hospital and has a weird encounter the next morning she realizes that you know whatever drug she was given was something heavy duty and she asks schneeberger in the morning uh she says what did you give me last night doctor and he says um uh why why do you ask did it give you some wild dreams Ugh, that just makes my skin crawl. But she's already at this point, the next morning, she's putting it together that something happened the night before. She's not feeling good about it. And she does something that I think really saves the story. It You're right. She's had the foresight to put her underwear into a plastic bag. And, and then when she went home, she immediately told her parents. And then they also did the right thing by taking her to Regina to get a rape kit done. And Regina and must be the nearest city to this. It's got. It's got to be the biggest, the nearest big city. Okay, I could never imagine how this would feel, but I think if you're at the point that you're actually putting your underwear in a plastic bag to preserve them, you're pretty. You like you you're have pretty to be pretty convinced. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So despite all the medicine and fogginess that went aside from that, she was certain what happened. They brought her uh, to Regina to have this rape kit done and the doctors or, or the nurses or whoever does the rape kit um, did find traces of semen on her clothes, on her underwear, as well as inside of her. And it was obvious something had happened the night before because she had told them I hadn't had intercourse, I think in weeks. So it's, you know, already she's like, he raped me last night. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's no way this is, no. And that's where the trouble really starts. First of all, you in a small town like Kipling, a 23 year old single mother, semi-employed makes an accusation of rape taking place at a hospital by a trusted doctor who's on duty and not even alone. There was other like nurses and stuff kind of around when this was said to happen. It wasn't, um, it wasn't, the the climate for those situations i think maybe was different than it was now because not a lot of people seem to believe her other than maybe her parents and her herself right there was yeah major public doubt uh, accusations that maybe she was in love with him and had this unrequited love so tried to sabotage him or maybe she was going after him for money because she's a kid without much money so maybe she's hoping to he'll like offer her money and that's like what people were thinking uh, yeah and like that was 
that was even before any like any investigation or anything happened so like you can imagine when everything's said and done and whatever they said he didn't do it at one point they were like oh yeah no for sure she's lying like well it would be um if it wasn't for the evidence she had like if she didn't get that rape kit and all that stuff done right away it would be and if it was it became a battle of her word versus his word it would be tough because he's like a trusted doctor in a hospital there was nurses on duty that were around as this was said to happen it would be a very uphill battle luckily she had the rape kit done so she has a sample of the dna of the person whose uh, semen was found on and inside her she says it's the doctor he said it wasn't him so it's a pretty clear next step the police um, meet with him and do uh, and take his blood for a dna test and that's where things start to get interesting the first time they do it they and i say the first time there's a couple blood tests in this case uh the first time they do it i believe he does it willingly all three times i don't know if any of the three were actually like court ordered he had to do it i think each time no, they were all voluntary yeah so when the accusations came dr john schneeberger says like i didn't do it i will prove my innocence he he first offered like i will take my blood and bring it down here and they're like no we want to no no we want to see you do the test so he comes down and he's a room in a room with like i think there's a police officer and then in like a nurse who does blood stuff all the time and she's the one who actually puts the needle in into a vein in his arm he's sitting there and there's video of it i've watched the video of his blood tests um doesn't look like anything weird's happening and she injects it in his arm takes a vial of blood out everything seems fine uh he thanks them and leaves when they do the dna test on the blood that was withdrawn on his arm it is not a match for the dna on her rape kit which is a big twist uh she candace she says there's no way it was him who did it something's up he must have given fake blood or did something well and dna was still new at this point so she was like mm, let's do this again yeah maybe I, it was tampered with they do a second dna test after these accusations with another blood test it works the same way and usually i believe they will prick a fingertip but he didn't want to do that do you know the reason why he wouldn't allow them to prick the fingertips he told them he had some sort of disease that would make him that would bruise his fingertips if you took blood from them anyone's going to bruise when you take blood but on your fingertip it's going to be if you had some disease where you bruised easy it'd be more i guess maybe you wouldn't want it on your fingertip um but i think the the big thing here though is that since these were voluntary tests they were like oh whatever like as long as we can yeah. get one from you like you're here taking your time out of your day so exactly the first one comes back not a match he agrees to another second one because candace is still pushing it he did it i want an investigation something went wrong do another he agrees to the second under those same terms take it from my arm not my fingertip also comes back as negative but here's what's interesting she firmly believing in her position that he raped her and that the dna that there was something hokey going on she hires a private investigator and i think it's this private investigator that manages to break the case uh, it actually happens during a third blood test that they get 
the good doctor, the bad doctor to do. Uh, he's coming down to give a third one. Um, and so they know where he's going to be. The private investigator goes to the clinic or the lab or whatever it was he was he was uh, going to be giving blood. And when the doctor goes in the building, the private investigator goes to check out his car. Fortunately, Schneeberger doesn't lock his doors, so the private investigator just hops in the car. I think it's it takes... Saskatchewan. The keys are probably in the ignition. Oh, right. Is that what it's like there? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, he, when he goes in, he takes a couple hair samples uh, from the headrest and a stick of chapstick with the plan of like, something's up with this guy's blood tests let's do our own dna test and candace is paying for all this which i think is also something she's just a, a young lady single mother who is managing this battle on her own against the powers that be i think the police are probably on their fence on the fence about who they believe but a lot of people believe the reputable doctor who's serving the community in the, a unique way that a doctor would however the private investigator gets this stuff the hair follicles they get don't have enough root to take a DNA sample from, so they were useless. But the stick of chapstick, there's like a DNA sample or whatever left behind from being rubbed over his lips. Candace pays to have that checked, the, a DNA test done on that. And sure enough, it matches with her rape kit, unlike the blood he's been given, which is, uh, it, that must have been a huge moment for them. But... <laughs> they can't use that evidence because it was obtained illegally. Right. So it's just like, ah, oh, we uh, know, but we can't, but also you know they can't prove that chapstick was Schneeberger's. It was just in his car. But it, I think it's enough that they can take it to the police and they'd be like, listen, sure. we went in his car, we took his stuff. You can't use this in court, but he is absolutely the guy. Something is going on with the blood tests. Um, they're failing. And in fact, we should also say the third blood test he did, and like we're kind of compressing the story. This happened over a couple of years, but the third blood test he did, the, the nurse who administered it, again, she's sitting there touching his arm, sticking the needle in it, like, you know, just like any of us would up close and personal. But when she withdraws the blood from his, the vial of blood, and I've seen video of this as well, she says, like, huh, like it doesn't look fresh. Ugh. Something's up with this. The vein was larger, or appeared much larger than I would have expected. And uh, I thought that was a little unusual. She tries another tube, but still has trouble. Sometimes the vacuum is poor in them and would not pull the blood out of the individual's arm. Eventually, she was able to extract a sample. Afterwards, the nurse was puzzled. But she doesn't like call him on it. She just assumes, I guess he just doesn't have fresh blood in that DNA test. The third one that they did, the one that was being done while they were going in his car, uh, that they couldn't, when they sent that away for DNA testing, it couldn't even give a result because it was too, um, like, I don't know what the it was word just too poor, like too poor too quality, de degraded, like degraded, de yeah. decomposed. Oh, I don't know. Well, what that in another interview, that nurse or phlebotomist or whoever, she said, I had never seen blood that looked like that come from a living person. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, the police at this point, I think, are probably pretty sure he did it. 
he did his three tests though and people were there witnessing it so they have no case against him in 1994 two years after the event happened they closed the case they're like there's we can't get him. this is he he gave blood three times it's it, DNA's telling us it's not him. And and I could see how that like I, I can't I haven't been able to find any, but I imagine the news reports and stuff at the time could have been written in a way that made her seem like a nut and him seem oh, like absolutely like that poor doctor going through all this, voluntarily yeah. giving blood, clearing his name three times. Oh, and yeah, just the the runaround this girl's giving him and yeah. Ugh. Um imagine. Yeah, it's not hard to. Uh, I could see how this could happen. The initial case against Schneeberger from Candace, who was sure he was guilty, who had a private investigator who all but proved it, by, but using means that were not able to be brought into court. The case was closed. However, several years later, in 1997, um, I think everybody involved in the initial investigation was about to get some pie on their face in the worst possible way. And I think if you're a police officer or an investigator, the worst thing that could possibly happen, I can only imagine is if you let someone get away with a crime and then they do it again to someone even more vulnerable and you have to then kind of double back and double check your work. What happens in April, 1997? You want to talk us through this? In April of 97, John's then 15-year-old stepdaughter tells her mom, John's wife, that John had been coming into her room drugging and raping her too for two years since she was 13. Mm -hmm. And she had evidence as well in the form of um, uh, condom wrappers, I think. Yeah, she, she brought her mom into her room and there was a condom wrapper still in her bed. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah. So thankfully her mom like believed her right away, reported it. Um, they found in his home office like a box of needles and drugs and condoms. Uh, and and I, we should also say that his wife, Lisa is her name. She was um, completely supportive of him during the, the initial uh, accusations made by Candace. Totally. But, but of course, when you're, 15 year old daughter comes to you with this and the tables have turned completely at this point. Well, uh, and I guess, I guess her mom at Lisa asked her like, why didn't you come tell me sooner? And she said, well, you didn't believe Candace. Why would you believe me? Oh, like, Oh, that I, that's awful. But I think I can understand that. Oh, if, total and a 13 year old like their you know their brain isn't developed yet i i can't imagine going through that i can't imagine going through that at 30 mm -hmm. let alone as an adolescent that when they when this was reported to the police they searched his home and of course as you described they found that box with the needles and medicine and condoms was it the same medicine or the same drug they found that he had used on candace do you know that they found in this box I, I don't know if it was only midazolam, but they found the midazolam in there. Okay. So it was at least, yeah. The, yeah and at I, least. Oh, yeah. It, just because that points out like he's using this for that purpose and it's like right. his go to. Um, but now things are different. Again, we've, we've made it clear that the initial blood tests that Dr. John Schneeberger gave to the police 
were initially voluntary. So he had a little bit of choice as to where they stuck the needle and where they didn't. This time he does not have that choice. Um, and they are going to do it on his fingertip. When he gives blood, they do it. They, they take hair follicles, which you can get DNA from the, the root. They take uh, they do a mouth swab for his saliva. And again, the blood from the fingertips, uh, all three are a different result than the prior tests. It's a different person. This person matches Candace's original rape kit. It obviously, Dr. John Schneeberger has found a way to give fake blood despite the nurse being on top of him, up close and personal, an expert in it, was, a, was tricked sticking a needle into his arm. We will later learn that what he was doing, this bizarre trick where he had a vial of another patient's blood, a male patient, he had the vial of blood up, his, up the sleeve of his shirt, and then he had a tube coming from that vial of blood that he must have cut himself in the arm and slid the tube under his skin all the way down his arm so the tube looked like a vein. Uh, it's called a Penrose drain, and it's just a little rubber tube. And it's designed to be placed under the skin to drain a wound. I don't know. Yeah. So he filled he filled a little plastic tube or rubber tube full of another man's blood, a patient, mm -hmm. and surgically planted it into his right arm. And like, I'm trying to figure out how he did this. So it's a, if you're listening, you can't see, but so it's just like a long tube. So you would have to make an incision up around your bicep. No, because I guess you, because you would need to feed it down to your, like where your veins are. And you would have to have it high enough so that you could have your sleeve cover it. And yeah, I like bizarre. Yeah. I don't like to me, that seems completely insane. If you were like, if someone's like, Jordan, you're going to jail for 25 years and your reputation will be ruined and you'll be done forever. Or you can take a tube and like coax it down your arm under your skin. I just be like. I guess I'm dead then. I'm done. I couldn't imagine doing that. I yeah, I guess I guess where there's a will, there's a way. I'd like to know what this guy would score on the psychopath test. Because oh, I bet you this guy's a psychopath. Absolutely. Sure. There's no, there's no way you could given the position like Who does that? The position that he was in to have a patient come in having a mental health crisis and you had just delivered her baby and you're thought is like, I'm going to drug and have sex with her tonight. And then when, you know, when she realizes it, your, your next step is like, well, I'm going to put a fake vein in my arm and fill it with another patient's blood and I'm good to go. Like I guess this, it, this is some twisted, twisted stuff that he has going on. We'll just spend a minute on, on his trial because he's eventually charged with Candace's rape and drugging her. Uh, as well as like obstruction of justice or something for like yeah. tricking them with the fake blood. And then he's also charged with the sexual assault um, of his uh, his then 15 or 13 and 15 year old stepdaughter, like through that period, one stepdaughter from the ages of 13 to 15, at least. Uh, when he when he goes to trial, he continues to double down on his uh, innocence. His original accusation 
is that Candace wanted money, so she broke into his house and like got a blood sample or something. What was it that he he told them about the tube, but mm-hmm. he said it was self defense. Oh because yes, he admitted because... to the tube, but there was a reason. Yes. Why. And he said it was because Candace broke into his house, located and stole a used condom out of the garbage, and to tr- to try and frame him. Oh, and and that's why he take took this unusual step of using yeah. another. Okay, I wow. would have been kicked out of the courtroom. I would have just been in tears laughing at this clown, like, uh, oh my god! But uh, I'm always. I- in- like interested in when these people who are obviously guilty if they don't plead guilty they need to find some outlandish way to say like well here's what happened and they got to make everything kind of work and it's always this crazy story and hope they got a damn good lawyer yeah who can sell it yeah (laughs) in his case so his story is that she was she wanted money she broke into his house got a condom out of the garbage and was going to use it to say he raped her so he put a fake vein in and tricked these tests to get a, as self-defense like that is pretty wild it's like come on buddy it's insane the jury does not buy, or the judge or jury or whoever convicted him doesn't buy his crazy theory um he is found guilty of sexual assault and administering a nauseous substance uh for candy and the teenage daughter, uh, the teenage stepdaughter, he didn't, and then he got the obstruction of justice uh, charge for Candy um, because of the fake vein and all that stuff. But dis- despite, like, I think people who are listening to this are gonna that don't know the story are like, oh my god, this is completely nuts. But despite everything that this evil son of a bitch did, he got like a very light tap on the wrist when you read his sentence. He was sentenced to six years in prison, but he got parole after four years, which like, is that not insane given what he did and given again, the the extenuating circumstances of the fact that he's a doctor in a position where he can put people under and he's, I just feel like six years is the lightest sentence possible. It's unfathomable. Like And, and against a child that he was raping for years. Well, exactly. That's what I said. I said, he's not just a rapist. He's a pedophile. Like, what the, and what a slap in the face to the victims, because you, you can face up to five years just for obstruction. Mm. So who's, who's doing the sentencing here? Like, Mm -hmm. and then, yeah. And then another layer to this too, is for Candace's point of view, she's been yelling from the mountains that this guy did it. But he's but got away with it, and now she's like at the the only way she gets justice is as a result of him continuing to do it to a child, which th- well, there must be a ton of emotions that come with that. And we don't know how many others he did this to. How many women has he done this to that have no memory of it and think everything's fine? Here's my thought: if he all but got busted by Candace when Candace. Um, came forward he only got away with it by like the skin of his teeth yet he still continued to do it years later with the same drug and using i'm assuming the same kind of method with a child there's no way in my mind that he didn't do this to other patients before or after yeah. it's such an extreme crime 
that I, it, yeah. it just doesn't seem like something you randomly do like that's something that he's been doing i think well and that's that's like textbook narcissist mm -hmm. to yeah. yeah to get away with it like you said by the skin of his teeth and then mm -hmm. keep doing it yeah it's it's the whole thing with th that he was able to trick the nurses with that fake vein and when you watch uh, one of the early documentaries it's called forensic files that covered this case they used a lot of video footage of him actually giving the blood test and there's one spot where there's this one moment where uh, the nurse has her back to him and she's doing something at a table and the camera's pointed at him and you see him kind of adjust his arm and you can see where the vein is kind of or where like the tube is kind of going in his arm so it's like if any time during this these three procedures had taken his blood if his shirt had to just twist it slightly the wrong way they would have saw it but then again if they didn't if if him giving like a dead man's dna a dead man's blood basically wasn't a dead giveaway i don't know like i i don't well, I, and I feel I like there's the nurse the nurse said that like she you know you she feels for the vein and she said like it felt kind of large but also this would never even cross anyone's mind oh yeah absolutely not. you know so they they wouldn't think anything of it hmm. um to get through the end of the story he's found guilty he gets six years in prison paroled after four uh, of course he had his medical license stripped his wife divorced him of course and she were in, I think more importantly, she reported him to immigration authorities um, in putting pressure on them to like get this guy out of Canada. Eventually, he was deported and stripped of his Canadian citizenship. But well, there's he, it's he lied on his because he, he raped Candace in 1992 and got his citizenship in 1993. Oh, yes. And he lied on his application and to the judge. And said that he wasn't the subject of an investigation when he that's, was. Yes, that's right. One of the questions on the immigration whatever papers when he got his citizenship asked that. And he said, no, I guess they didn't look into it enough, didn't catch it. And a part of his wife reporting him, I think, was what led them to realize he lied on the application. And that was a part of the way they got him out of the country. Um, one part of the story, I, I hope you, you know this part better than me, but somehow through all this his wife ended up getting fined now ex-wife lisa ended up getting fined two thousand dollars for contempt of court and it had to do with like the custody or visitation with his children because again she had two kids from a prior marriage and then they had two kids together what what happened with, with the children so they had two daughters together who were five and six at the time and for whatever reason the a judge like court ordered visitation at the prison and when lisa was like no and didn't take the girls she got fined two grand <laughs> for contempt of court wow i would have i'd pitch in and pay that for her right uh, like yeah, yeah. oh my god I mean, she did i guess eventually obey the court order but yeah you don't really have a choice with those things. Uh, yeah that's true. Um, I, w I would love to know what that situation is now between him and his children, because he eventually um, he, he spent some time, I believe, in Regina working construction and then was deported back to South Africa. 
I believe. And I, th and as far as we can tell, that's where he's at now. But this whole, like his deportation, that just like people maybe believed him in the beginning, the deportation was also a battle. There was a large letter writing campaign where despite all of this stuff being true, him giving the fake blood, molesting the child and raping a patient, there was a letter writing campaign where people tried to get him to be allowed to stay in Canada by writing to like, I don't know, government politicians and such. I think they just wanted to like give him more time so that they that he could say goodbye to his kids. And it worked because he was ordered to deport in December and he didn't get back to South Africa until July of 2004. Wow. And not only did they right? do a letter writing campaign, there was also a large party to say goodbye what kind of position do you need to have like, in the community where you can do this and people are still like we don't want you to leave let's have a party to say goodbye i'm just picturing like this old boys club of like oh like like losers uh, like satanic pedophiles like this large exactly oh yeah um, i just i can't fathom like imagine sticking behind someone like that that would be a very hard place to stick um but people did it and people in that community and do it yeah people in that community knew who they were and yeah um he leaves to south africa in 04 he lives with his mother he tried to get within three weeks of arriving in south africa he applied for a medical license in south africa psychopath uh, absolutely <laughs> it, they never had the chance to decline Back. it because he withdrew it before they had a chance to decline it. There must have been some smoke or some red Thank flag God. that they were looking into him. I wonder um, if he just gained clarity and was like, oh, I'm an asshole uh, and I shouldn't do that. I feel No, I feel like his thing would be like, it may look worse for me in the future if I get it declined and I think they're on to me or something, I'm gonna withdraw totally. So there's no decline and I'm gonna regroup. And to this, as far as we can tell, it, it seems like in South Africa, his brother has been a strong supporter of, um, you know, my brother, like he may have done something wrong, but he's a good guy. He should be working as a doctor. And he does have support of family in South Africa. But it his, seems I think his brother works in Ohio. Oh, I looked really? into him. He's a yeah, cardio surgeon in Ohio. Oh, <laughs> Oh, oh, I go I Googled the shit out of you. There you go, but she's on to you. I was like, I want to <laughs> see what Bill looks like. Yeah. But um Dr. J well, then doctor, now just John Schneeberger, is like expelled from Canada. So he will not be back here. But I wasn't able to find anything about this guy after say 2005-ish. Like he seems to have disappeared. Yeah, he's flying under the radar, that's for sure. And that said, there is oddly enough in all of our search you and i had been talking about this there's another man named dr john schneeberger and if you google this doctor who did this horrible stuff the rapist doctor you'll find all these hits about him about another doctor with the same name in montana who i don't know if he was running for like yeah, mayor or congress or something he's like this something like that just this like kind of political guy with like a pretty big internet presence and a lot of um, his photos and interviews and stuff but if you look at him he even looks like dr john the rapist but it's two different people and the way i figured that out is just the not rapist dr john schneeberger has like a large mole above his eyebrow and a thick like kind of american accent i it was the accent that 
really like sold it for me but yeah i'm fa i'm face blind so like i tried to compare the photos and i was oh, like they had uh, similar features so i was even like i was as i'm reading i was like whoa is this guy now one, like one photo was from 1992 hmm. i don't know did he age gracefully i don't know <laughs> yeah it's i'm just surprised that this other dr john schneeberger given like the uniqueness of a name i'm surprised like every single thing on the internet that he does doesn't start with like by the way um not that one like his instagram bio should be not the rapist i'm not the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well and oh, it's like this poor guy because when you google dr john schneeberger this guy's recent photo pops up with a little write-up underneath like it's not the same little box but the write-up underneath is about the rapist john schneeberger mm. uh, so yeah. like this poor guy he certainly knows that he has he the has same to. and it's a very unique name but i guess right the problem is john is so common so schneeberger is not is an uncommon last name in North America, but John is so common that if you have yeah. twenty five Schneebergers, there's a pretty good chance two of them may, well, may be John or Mike or something. And I also read that his real name was like, or maybe his first name was Stephen, and he may have gone by that. So of course I'm searching like Stephen Schneeberger, but I mean John Stephen, what's same mm -hmm. same diff like. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a popular name. So, yeah. well, so in this story, I think the big things that that I think are notable about it is just how evil and manipulative and deliberate the doctor was in drugging and raping victims and covering his tracks. That's shocking to only get six years in prison. Absolutely an injustice in my and mind to serve four of them. Yeah, it's like, come on. And you, you also, just like you couldn't convince me that he didn't do this to other people be, besides his stepdaughter and, and his patient, Candace, I like I, I would be shocked to learn he didn't do it again after in South Africa somewhere. Absolutely. I'm I totally agree because people like that don't change and they can't be rehabilitated and they have like this weird God complex. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's not like he, if, if to compare it with, say, like thievery, it's not like he went into a store and uh, stole an expensive piece of merchandise and left. What he would have no. done was organize this elaborate heist that involved like a train and, you know, tunnels and a bomb, and, you know, and like, like Ocean's Eleven. to the lasers to avoid detection. Like it's, it's, very elaborate what he went through in high pressure like to go in and give these blood tests with a nurse right in front of you this it's just so over the top that yeah premeditated over the top Ugh. it's not a four-year uh four years in prison this guy's gonna be fine he's he's over that like i and our listeners before we said the sentence are probably waiting for like a 25-year sentence you know life life without the chance of parole for 15 years that would seem appropriate <laughs> right even even 10 for me would be low uh, i've heard this 10 would be better yeah i i don't know if this is true but i've heard from multiple people that um at least the perception is that if there's a chance you'll be extradited like kicked out of the country that uh, of canada that 
it's you're more apt to get a shorter sentence and get parole quicker knowing that they're just going to boot you out so i wonder I if wonder. i wonder if he got parole after the wife his wife lisa had reported him to immigration authorities and the writing was on the wall that we can get him out of prison and get him out of the country and not give Probably. this guy better care than our seniors get in this country um, right well i know now that that's the law if you are an immigrant here and whatever you're in jail as soon as you're out you're deported like there's there's no like you're out and lots of inmates actually like try and act up to stay in the country hmm. they wanted they want to stay in jail so they can stay here well they probably have to get it pretty good dental medical treatment full cable in there all yeah, these little craft night um but but i but what i wonder though is like are you more likely to get paroled quicker if there's the chance to extradite you like get you out of the country like let's say if you gotta uh, be it would make like sense. it would just make sense yeah yeah but i just wonder if it's all connected because it's like the parole board of canada is not like the immigration people like but i wonder no. if there's any kind of community they must have to communicate in some way because when someone gets paroled there's going to be like immigration people outside the prison to collect them and get them out of the country so there totally. would be some communication i just wonder i've wondered about that a lot well then then they're blacklisted from entering yeah as they should be so. this, this guy should not be ever in his life be dealing with patients or people um that are or vulnerable. feel happiness he should never and nothing good should ever happen to this man ever he should feel nothing but misery for the rest of his life uh how much of a rock star though does candace come up i love this woman like she did not give up she was so determined she was like over my dead body mm -hmm. i'm going to prove this and she was only 23 so that's like that's a pretty well, big battle to take on it's like i'm like the doctor rate me i'm gonna take him down i'm gonna hire a private investigator we're gonna i'm gonna hound the police and i'm not ugh. going to give up uh, yeah, that is just wonderful. And thank God she did. Mm -hmm. And but you know what? Even yeah, in her best efforts, the case was still closed. Yeah. And in her best efforts, it didn't protect his daughter or his no. stepdaughter, which is I'm sure she well, I don't know. She she probably felt a lot of emotions, but there was nothing oh. she could have like she did I I would confidently say she did more than most people would. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, she and she did everything right. And if you watch the uh, the documentaries, there especially the forensic files one that she's in, they interview her under the name Candy, and she's like cocky as hell. Uh, uh, yeah, she's the best. Yeah, and at, at at one point in filming the documentary, they they kept the cameras running, but she actually got the a call. I don't know if it's from a That's family right. or whatever, but someone called her while she's like being filmed for this documentary to let her know that he had his parole denied at one point or something. Yeah. So that, uh, I think that would have been in a one. That was yeah. 2001. So it was probably, yeah, like two or three years into a sentence. Oh, she got and the... she was so happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I like Well, she, I couldn't imagine. She was crass, though. I don't know if crass is the right word. She was intense. Like in the documentary, oh, yeah. she was so like, just as you described, she's like, I was going to get this guy. And yeah. at, matter at of times, fact, yeah, at times she came off a little strong. But then at the same time, I'm like, man, this person is a warrior. He picked. Yeah. Me absolutely picked the wrong person to do this to the worst person yeah um yeah what what i think about this though is how is there not a massive lawsuit against the prison uh, against the hospital like because it's 
if she I have so many questions about this hospital and the night in question. I know this was 30 years ago, and I know this was in like small town Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. But like healthcare, I and this is coming from the point of view of, you know, someone A that works there and B has, you know, been a patient. You had spare beds in the hospital to just like convince a patient to stay. Mm, yeah, that's that, that like, doesn't happen nowadays. Oh no. Or like in the emergency room, they're like, Are you sure you don't want to stay and see a doctor? Oh my goodness. Now if they're like, Oh, you think you're fine? Later. Yeah. Do you need one of like, the janitors to carry you to your car? Right. Exactly. So I just, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to know what, what this hospital was like, because yeah, it couldn't have been busy. I remember on one of the documentaries, they said that the only other man in the entire hospital was a man whose wife was giving birth Mm -hmm. and he couldn't have, he was with his wife the whole time. He, there was no time he wasn't accounted for. So this couldn't have been the man to rape Candy. But I was like, you could track down how many men were in the hospital at a specific time. Yeah. Like, uh, I forgot about that because there was some discussion of like, she, like someone raped her, but Dr. Who? Schneeberger, his DNA didn't match from that blood test. So like who else? There was only one other man in the hospital and it wasn't him. Um, but yeah, I, I think I we could never know because it would take him telling us the truth, Dr. John Schneeberger telling us the truth. But um I wonder if a part of her ability to stay and get this room, I wonder if it had something to do with him being like, this is what I'm going to do tonight to her. You know, the doctor on duty, would he not be, wouldn't he not be the one who could call the shots more than anyone as far as who gets rooms and stuff? I don't know. Not now. No. Okay. No. But back then, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Yeah. But I think regardless though, I think Candy, Candace, this happens to her while he's, in his job or whatever like it seems like that would be a lawsuit that would be pretty easy for her right you would think but then i also think same goes for the stepdaughter if like could the stepdaughter not also have like a case to make against maybe not against the hospital but against the police like he's been doing it he was accused (sighs) of it and he was yeah, I don't know. But then again, he tricked them. So I don't know. If- I was going to say the obstruction probably cleared him of any sort of lawsuit. Like cleared like the, R- the RCMP or whatever. But right. Yeah. And then I, all, yeah, like, I don't know. And then I also think like maybe not to say that this nurse did anything wrong, but the nurse who noticed his vein felt unusual and that the blood looked dark and not fresh. I like that's where my mind would be going. I'd be like, I'm suing everybody involved in this, the hospital, the police. The nurse who was he was able to trick not to say that i think so yeah (laughs) no and and then of course i'm suing schneeberger because it's you know he probably had some money too but i i just i haven't really found much information about things like that happening and maybe that's another part of the difference between the early 90s and 2023 where i think canadians are more litigious now than they would have been back in the 90s but there, there could also be, there could have been a statute of limitations or yeah, whatever. I, I guess by the time the accusations against him came from the stepdaughter, it was five years after Candace's case. And then the, the trial was seven years. Yeah. Uh, nine, 92 to 99. What is that? Seven years? Seven, eight, nine. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, but it's a, this is a brutal one and it's, it's shocking that this isn't well known. Although 
if you Google it, there's there's a lot of coverage by like bloggers, YouTubers, writers and stuff. I was not surprised. So, not so much mainstream though. I haven't no. found I haven't found uh I've only found I think like four or five articles even about this guy. Well, and I'm surprised it hasn't been like a made into like a a large Hollywood movie because well, it sounds like a movie. It does. Well, it was made into a movie. Uh, yes. It, the, I, I think the movie is called I Accuse and it's a Canadian made for, I think, CBC. Maybe it's a made for TV thing. How far into the movie I Accuse did you make it? I got, I think, 21 minutes in. And what and was I was the, like, this isn't for me. Yeah. Well, it's just because I. it was the last thing I watched too. Mm-hmm. So all through, I'm like, that's wrong that's embellished that's not right yeah it's, and it's, it was yeah it was just a lot of driving scenes and a lot of field scenes and i'm like i live here i don't i'm fine see this <laughs> shit again yeah exactly so the movie i accuse is kind of like a dramatization based on his story i think if anyone was going to watch anything i'd say the forensic files episode is like 20 minutes it includes interviews with candace uh, i think uh Dr. John Schneeberger's wife, ex-wife, Lisa may have appeared in it. The police investigators appeared in it. And I'll include links to it in the podcast episode description for people who want to see it. Uh, just to, And it also includes um, some shots of him actually giving blood where you can see, where you get a chance to see the fake vein and stuff. But man, I've never heard of another case, anything like this. No. As far as the trickery. Well, and that's, yeah, that's why it's so shocking. It's not more well-known and talked about. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the injustice of his sentencing. Ugh. Yeah, that's a whole nother thing. But um, we usually wrap this up with asking what you have coming up next. But I'm going to instead ask, what did you release this week? Why don't you tell us about, you? this is kind of like a uh, a collab because we we're doing the podcast, but you covered this as well on YouTube. I did. I just released uh, an episode about Schneeberger on Tuesday. That's on my YouTube channel. Uh, yeah, that's the only place it is. Um, but yeah, it's like a 20 minute video and we kind of deep dive into the case and, and talk about it. You do an episode every Tuesday on your YouTube channel. What's coming next? I'm going to do a couple weeks ago. We talked about the Lost Boys of Pickering. So that inspired me to do two more lost boys from uh, uh Caledon, Ontario, Eric Larsfolk and John McCormick Jr. These boys just vanished off of the McCormick property in 1981 and have never been seen or heard from since. So two boys vanished from is there any like kind of prevailing theory? Uh their dad was kind of an asshole. Oh. Um so I the prevailing theory is they were killed, but there's there's been multiple searches and nothing's ever been found. Interesting. So, yeah. So that's that's what I'm going to talk about next week. Awesome. All right. Well, Madeline, we'll start wrapping this up. We'll be back uh, with another episode next week. Well, I'm looking very forward to it. All right. Well, Madeline, always a pleasure to discuss uh, very displeasurable stories with you. I like the way you put that. That is, yeah. I agree. (laughs) Thank you for having me. A pleasant nightmare. Yeah. All right. That's perfect. I want to thank you for joining Madeline and I for this episode of Nighttime. 
As I mentioned in the episode, I'll include links in the episode's description to both the documentary about Schneeberger that we referenced and to Madeleine's video covering this case. Now with that said, I'm going to start wrapping up this episode, but before I do, let me give some thanks. First, a big thanks to Monty Data, who contributed the music for this episode. A shout out to LJ from the Dystopian Simulation Podcast, who provides my intro and outro voiceovers. And lastly, but most importantly, a massive thank you to every one of you listening to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, Nighttime would be as pointless as it would be impossible. And on that topic of support, let me thank the newest subscribers to the Nighttime Podcast Premium Feed. Colin, Scythea, Pearl, and Richard, thank you for going premium. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't do it by way of a premium feed subscription, you can give the show a pat on the back by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting your like-minded friends know about the work we're doing here. If you have story ideas, if you want to give feedback on the show, or if you'd like to contribute a voice memo to be aired and responded to in an upcoming episode, you can do all that and more at nighttimepodcast.com. I hope to hear from you. But until then, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte.